so much of the inability to exert empathy is that if I give up my empathy to a person that I don't know, then it's a zero-sum game. And the assumption is I will lose. So then that fear ends up stopping any capacity to lean toward the other, toward difference, toward even the collision of difference. And I do find it very difficult. I do I find it very difficult to be with people whose rabid political and social views can sometimes feel as though they are really just about dominance, just about devouring. Um, they're not about meeting. They're not about a kind of convergence of understanding. And I think it's difficult to know what is it that can be done in a conversation. I'm not trying to convince you, I'm not trying to dominate you. I just want to genuinely know you and I want to listen. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. As president of Fuller Theological Seminary, with more than three decades of pastoral experience behind him, Mark Laberton is more than comfortable dwelling in uncertainty. For him, the space of the unknown is at least one way to access the kind of epiphany familiar to those of us on the creative path. Mark is far more than just a big picture thinker and leader. He's a prolific writer and orator with a unique gift for mining the sublime out of a secular idea. He's also someone who embodies the immersive and expansive mindset he brings to his teaching, writing, and wonderful podcast, Conversing with Mark Laberton. Mark and I first connected years ago as leaders of two important institutions of higher education in Pasadena. From the start, we were both fascinated by the connection between spirituality and creative expression. I am a teacher and theater director curious about the relationship between inspiration, divine or otherwise, and creative flow. He is a pastor who has come to see himself as a curator of faith and experience. From there, a friendship grew. Our affinity has continued to expand and deepen. And once I decided to dedicate this season of Change Lab to explore the future of higher education, I seized the opportunity to speak with Mark, knowing all that we can learn from him. I'm glad I followed my instinct on this one because our conversation was rich and full. As you will see, Mark understands something vitally important about leading with vulnerability. What's most compelling to me, however, is that he's found the power in what he exquisitely describes as a theology of making. Please enjoy my conversation with Mark Laberton. You know, I usually start or often start with guests by um, borrowing a page from our friend Krista Tippett and kind of maneuvering it slightly to ask people about their memories and their sense of themselves as creative beings, as children. With you, I actually want to kind of go immediately a little bit deeper and talk about what I understand is a central moment in your life of feeling called, of converting, I think in your language, converting to Christ as an adult. Right. And as a way for us to get into this, for you to talk a little bit about that story and that moment in your life. Yeah. Well, I would say that I grew up in a pretty creative family. And my father, who was a scientist and an engineer, um, saved certain neck veins for the discussion of religion because he wanted to be sure that his two boys had as little to do with religion and certainly with religious devotion as possible. And his main critique was that he believe that what religious people do is that they take great things and make them very small. Hmm. This is a both, I think, a rather profound philosophical and historical observation, uh, but also just a sociological and not irrelevant to today's debates in the American political landscape. And so just out of curiosity, uh, as I was entering college, I started uh, thinking that why, one of the things I should do is read the Bible because it just felt like it was one of the texts that I wanted to believe that I had at least some grasp of. So I started by reading the New Testament and I was just so shocked at how much Jesus and my dad had in common on this theme about the aberrations of religious devotion. And yet 
what I also was hearing was that Jesus was offering really something quite alternate to that, which was not an avoidance of religious devotion, but an understanding of what, at least in the teaching and example of Jesus, is what he calls the kingdom of God. And I realized that this was Jesus' antidote to smallness. Uh, It was an invitation into the expansiveness of God's imagination and God's purposes and God's justice and God's mercy in the world. And that suddenly meant that all of this was just dramatically changed in my own imagination. And it felt like to live a creative, expansive-minded and hearted life, this was part and parcel of Jesus' invitation. And I resisted it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, I didn't have religious instincts. I was not drawn to a religious life. Um, It wasn't what I was... (laughs) looking for when I was 18 years old. Um, But as I began to move down that road, it was a very significant change. And with it came over time, in my case, not right at that same point of conversion, but as a consequence later to this surprising sense that that I was called to express my faith uh, in a way that would involve religious or spiritual leadership in the context of a community of people. And that led to ultimately wanting to explore the question of whether to become uh, a pastor. Now, there is a funny little story that happened along the way. My my mom had latent Christian faith, and she uh, was interested that I had come to this kind of religious awakening. And um, my dad was, of course, horrified. My mom was slightly encouraged. And so she went to a church and she met this pastor and told her pastor that her son had had some kind of religious experience. And the pastor said, well, then I'd like to come and call on him. So uh, as an 18-year-old, to think of having a pastor come and call on you in your, in your parents' living room was not, again, an expectation I'd ever had of how these things might go. But uh, what ended up happening was that he came and after a little while of somewhat awkward conversation, he said, well, I've come really for three reasons. The first is that your mother's told me you've had a religious experience. The second is that might mean you're going to become a pastor. Now, that was about a million miles from my imagination Mm -hmm. at that stage. And he said, and thirdly, if you do become a pastor, I want to make sure that you know which denomination has the best pension plan. (laughs) Now, I was dumbfounded and horrified by this conversation. Um, It happened in the morning that night at dinner with my parents. I told them about the conversation and my mom was very embarrassed that this had all happened and realized that this was exactly the wrong thing to have happened. But my dad, a a gentle spirited guy said, now, you know, this is what we've been talking about, right? There was presumably some stage in his life when he thought he was beginning to get to know the God of the universe. And now this many years later, what he came to talk to you about was a job and a pension plan. Hmm. Isn't that the way things will always go? It's the great things being made small. And I realized vividly in that moment, how much my dad's warning was legitimate in every way. And I think one of the things that has guided my response to Christian faith, my response to the Christian gospel, my response to the role of ultimately being a pastor, which I've always found ironic and unexpected, uh, is the desire to avoid the small-making temptations that are always at hand, the myopia. I do want to just follow up on the pension, uh, meaning the smallness, and wonder if in your experience there's also a creative tension between the vast and the small, and as you negotiate those two elements in your experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in a way, philosophically, it's the one and the many problem, right? It's the particular and the universal. It's the cosmic and the subatomic. So yes, there is a creative tension and both both have their place. Particularity is not a problem. Smallness in the way I, I at least think my dad meant it of course, was myopic. Uh Um, It was a smallness that took something big and compressed it into something small that that was truly reductionist. And I think that is a problem. Um, But not not an uncommon human instinct, obviously, because we are such finite creatures. We have such limited boundary talents. 
and gifts. So yes, I mean, there is always that challenge and how you hold the tension is I think one of the things that I, I love about actually being a pastor, because in some ways, uh, the most particular details of a person's life that a pastor often has a unique angle of being able to experience and be introduced to is the kind of space in which I think some of the biggest possible realities of the world actually appear. So, right, yeah, right. absolutely. And again, like, you know, sort of deviating from your dad's particular point for a moment that in the smallness can be the profound as well. Absolutely. And I do want to visit our friend King Lear later on yes. in the conversation. But one of the amazing discoveries of a film of Lear by the Russian filmmaker Kazintsev uh -huh. was that he took a close-up of Cordelia crying and her tear almost took up the entire screen. Wow. Oh, well. And in the smallness yes, of yes. a tear yes. was the entire dramatic space yes, yes, and yes. was as profound and powerful as the king on the heath yes. contending with the fretful elements. Yeah, oh, that's that's wonderful. I haven't seen that film, but that makes complete sense to me. And, and it is my experience. I mean, you know, there's many writers who have made the observation that the more particular something is, the more universal it is, right? And... Mm -hmm. I think it's that same kind of point. And I think one of the great wonders of human experience of the world is that granular particularity. And I know this is a little strange that I might say this, but one of the things that I miss about not serving as a pastor is not being with people as they come to the point of death. And the reason for that is that I've had so many of those experiences that have been some of the most life-shaping, life-giving experiences I've ever had. And they've sometimes only happened in, you know, the last two hours of a person's life that is just mm. so exquisite and never able to be adequately really mm. conveyed. But I get to bear witness to that. And it's in that space, that tear, that the universe opens up. I am looking forward in a few moments to addressing the relationship between creativity and the spiritual life or our working lives. And you anticipate that in your comments. I mean, that's the core of really where I want to go. I am going to pause for a moment before I do, though, to ask you a little bit about your life at Fuller now and particularly where you see education right now and the crisis that we're facing, as you and I have discussed. Right, um, right. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, the pandemic and we've got uh, confronting the economic disparities and the impact that has on who we teach and who has access to the education right. we offer and right. issues of racial inequities and the significant moment of reckoning that we're facing as a world and the impact that that has on our educational world. And I want to invite you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I've been very compelled by what you've said to me in private and yeah. also what you've written and spoken about too. Well, I think we both feel very deeply that broadest vision of our institutions. They're not just uh, places where certain training or education happens. They're really hosts of a universe. And in that sense, uh, both of us share leadership of institutions that are places of great reflection and creativity and places where there's an enormous uh, population that we earnestly believe can and should and is being uh, served by our institutions, but everything's being redefined. So in a certain way, uh, I think when I came to Fuller to join the faculty, I was struck by how vigorous a place it is and very grateful for all of its history. For those who may not know, Fuller is a theological seminary that involves a school of theology, a school of intercultural studies, and a school of psychology and marriage and family therapy. And it's about the size of a small liberal arts college, around 3,000 plus students. And now, a student body that is completely virtual. Uh, we hope it will come back into in-person education in part at least, but it will remain virtual and it is global. So at any given time, there's probably 70 or 80 countries represented in the student body and around uh, 120 different denominational or church affiliated um, connections that various students have. So all that is just background to say, 
when the pandemic hit, uh, it was immediately possible for us with relative ease uh, to move to online education completely because we'd been doing it for 20 years. So it was not a, a shock in that way to do it. It meant some adjustments. It certainly meant some losses, but it also felt dramatically to me like we should really embrace this as a deep and profound and long-term pivot, not as a uh, as a short-term thing to be gutted out, but really something that really opened the door of opportunity to think about education in some even deeper ways. We had been doing it, but what if we were now to open a different kind of threshold, a different degree of examination? And we had just finished a, a year-long faculty examination about the learning outcomes of our online degrees versus our in-person degrees. And the, the committee admitted at the time of its report that it had deliberately stacked itself to be prone to in-person education. <laughs> and that after having spent a year rigorously examining all this, that they came to report to us somewhat to their chagrin, but also they said to their uh, out of gratitude that the learning outcomes of our online and in-person education was the same. And, uh, that was a pretty amazing moment. And hmm. a significant thing that had happened in early March, just before uh, we suddenly went virtual. So this year has been a year of exploration and growth. Um, and we've, we, I don't need to get into all the technical details of that, but, but the big questions that you're asking about, the change of higher education, I think higher education is gonna be moving to an ever more personalized format and, and a less and less uh, grouped format in the way that was centered on the place of the campuses. Uh, what, the way that we're talking about it is we don't want to center our education on our campus locations, which are Pasadena, Houston, and, and, and Phoenix. We want to center on the context of our students. And by doing that, we shift the center of gravity to our awareness of them, the reality and world that they live in, the meaningfulness of their context, and have already seen a significant new set of populations actually that we're reaching in this way that we would never have been able to reach if they had been required to have to come to one of our physical campuses, especially uh, in underserved populations where moving is a much bigger deal and where the, the financial cost, especially of Southern California can be very expensive and it removes them from their communities. So it's a really different vision. I think when I first started the very first board meeting at Fuller, I said to the board, Fuller has followed the example of most higher educational institutions that have seen themselves for 1500 years as repositories, a repository of a library and a repository of a faculty. And I said, we want to keep being such a repository, but we have to relocate that sense of repository because what we actually need to become is a portal. into a new set of experiences, a new perception of how we are trying to serve our students and new, the new worlds into which we want to invite them, which is not about how to come and live in Southern California and dwell in isolation in a study carol or a set of classrooms. That has its legitimate space and we're gonna to continue to do that. But it is also a portal to new worlds and that is a two-way portal. So yes, we can open doors to some of the portals, but we also need to have doors open to us so that we can enter into new spaces and be challenged uh, and motivated by the opportunity of education that's more two-way and that is more personalized, that's more centered on the context and purpose of students than on the institutional paradigms that have largely defined almost every higher educational institution. I think that creates a pathway to serve underserved populations more and to be able to do better and more useful uh, educational formation than, um, than we have sometimes done. I mean, I love that change of perspective and I'm wondering if it's too simplistic to merely say that you're being led by a question of who and who can access as opposed to a question of where and the getting in and coming to. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I don't think that is too simple a frame. I think that's exactly what we're talking about. Who is the who that we're trying to serve? And who will those people serve in our case, right? Because uh -huh. every institution has the population that the education is 
meant for not only the recipient directly, but the people that are affected by the recipient's life or work, whatever, in whatever setting that might go on. And while it's true that a lot of people that come to Fuller come to Fuller for classic uh, vocations that are related to the Christian faith, it's also true that many, many people who come from industry and the arts and media and technology and business come to Fuller to do a, a degree in order to be better able to be the kind of people they want to be in all those uh, secular workplace settings that are not necessarily Christian vocations per se, but are uh, informed. They want their those positions to be informed. So yes, I mean, it's, it's a terrifically important shift. And I think is happening at Fuller for our particular reasons, but you know, from our conversations, I'm, I know that Art Center is trying to discover its way of responding to this and every institution that I know of. And does this cross over for you, Mark, personally with your own very firm, but I would say loving indictment of your own evangelical community and the comments and the insights that you've articulated in which you feel like maybe the evangelical life has failed to embody the very gospel it preaches. And is this shift in perspective in terms of educational mission or purpose or access connected with that? Yes. Yes. It's very much connected. It's connected uh, primarily because in my own reflections, a lot of what you're seeing in the media represented as evangelical voices are speaking out of their social location. They're not really speaking out of their theological or spiritual vocation. And it is interesting that when in the 2016 election, the 81% of white evangelical voters for Trump were polled about their religious activity. It turned out that well over 50% of that 81% never attended church. So I say that not because I think, quote, attending church is the solution. I'm saying it more on the grounds that it, it really indemnified, it seemed to me, my assumption, which was that these voices and the way that they were trying to use it was about their social location more than it was about being informed by their faith. It was tagged with their faith, but it wasn't formed by their faith. And that tag had to do with the way that evangelicalism can play like any social tag. And this was the use of a religious tag to cover a political and social location that was biased in some very particular and, and virulent and in some cases very, very tragic and horrific ways. And in addition to that, there were Christian, overtly Christian voices, pastors, televangelist-ish people who have spoken stridently and uh, I would say very painfully from my point of view about the relationship between a certain kind of Trumpian agenda and the essential connection for them between that agenda and their own uh, Christian faith. So if I'm going to take that seriously and not push it away, then I have to ask about myself and our institution here in, in Pasadena and Houston and Phoenix, in what way is our work itself also to defined by social location? We are located, our main campus is on the left coast, as it were, uh, and we are a center-left population. And at the same time, we could still be just as defined, of course, by social location of that kind, as much as people that are center-right or severely right. So it's not that we can avoid social location, but it is a serious question to say, how do I become really, uh, with others, genuinely self-critical about a faith that we profess that's greater than social location and whether social location or our faith is actually most defining to mm -hmm. our life and work. Mm -hmm. And I think we, I think it, it has to be the case that we start with an acknowledgement that our social location is far more influential than, than many Christians would be prepared to believe. But that plays across the spectrum. That's not just left or right. That's just, it's wherever anybody is. And it's, it's an ancient problem. So it's not as though we're dealing with something that's not, that's merely a Christian problem, meaning it's the, it's the thing that's the most local. This is where the earlier part of our conversation about the particular becomes uh, both a means of, of wonderful uh, reality and a boundary that can become a, a means of defending tribalisms that I would never want to defend. And, you know, all kinds of issues of racial and social and educational and economic privilege 
that permeate our lives in ways that we just take as normative, right? That's crazy. It's not normative. Um, I remember the first time I traveled to India and I love India. I, I, I actually, I love and hate India. I love it because it's so unbelievably amazing and by far the most stimulating place I think I've ever gone uh, and have since made a number of trips. But it, it, when I landed there, I thought, okay, so this is actually what the world is. This, this is actually what human experience is primarily like around the world. Mm. It's in mass human scenes of extraordinary creativity, beauty, gentleness, creativity, but also suffering and poverty and disease and uh, broken systems. And if I was ever to suggest, I didn't suggest this, but if I was ever to suggest that being white, tall, educated male uh, is normative, that's just like crazy. What, what world is that? So, right. yeah. Right. And here again, I think Shakespeare's Lear comes in in significant ways. And by the way, for the listeners, Mark and I have had conversations about this play, and Mark recently wrote an article. Was it in Atlantic? Yeah, it was in the Atlantic, yeah. Yeah. So I guess my question has to do with we are, all of us as leaders, I mean, vulnerable to, um, I think, the consequences of leading when our hearts are a little bit harder, as Lear's is at the beginning of that play, that has to do with our ego or our sense of status or personal gain. And he he goes through, obviously, a very painful and ultimately very tragic journey right. in the softening of his mm-hmm. heart. And I guess my question as leaders, we need a firmness of purpose and a gentleness of spirit simultaneously, I think. And I think it's relevant to what you were just saying. It is, yeah. And I'm interested in how you wrestle with that. Well, when you started this, you made the statement, we all wrestle as leaders with vulnerability. And then you went on to complete the sentence, but I would stop right there. (laughs) We all wrestle (laughs) with vulnerability. And it's in our own vulnerability that we develop strategies, which can sometimes try to hide or mask or compensate for our vulnerabilities. And it's how we negotiate our vulnerabilities that probably says the most about what kind of leaders we are and what kind of leaders we want to encourage around us, what kind of leadership we want to encourage around us. And um, yeah, I think one of the reasons why Lear has been such a such an important work to me over the years has been that it's one of those classic works that puts in, in view in a way that I find honestly as familiar as I am with that play, I still find it as astonishing as any single piece of art does for me that puts in view the temptations and dangers of vulnerability in the context of leadership and strategies that can seem maybe even innocuous that end up just becoming disastrous and how much it is around a strategy of why does a person have a hard heart, right? What is it that has cultivated Mm -hmm. the hard heart? There's lots of good reasons that people have hard hearts. I mean, it's not difficult to understand. Um, There is a self-protection that can be built up out of all kinds of things that people can experience, which understandably can cause them to become protective of, of a deep vulnerability that needs really to be healed. But sometimes it can feel like it just needs to be guarded and protected. And if you're not prepared to acknowledge the vulnerability, then it obviously complicates the picture. Even if you are prepared to acknowledge the vulnerability, it can be great enough that a person can obviously develop a whole life strategy, a whole life that's just about uh, a guardedness. I remember a paper in Berkeley years ago, starting with a sentence that said, Berkeley's the kind of place where you can have a lifestyle without necessarily having a life. (laughs) And uh, I was both amused by it, but also sobered by it, because I think that little quip is an interesting thing, not just about Berkeley, but anywhere, of course. And a lot of leaders decisions about how you're going to be vulnerable and how you're going to allow your vulnerability to be accessible to others and then even handleable by others. Right. That all takes a lot is what it takes. Right. Yeah. In my experience, there's so much pushing to keep a certain level of containment or firmness that I believe our communities need. Yes. Yes. But then I, it's so easy to confuse that or to allow your heart to be hardened. Yes. Where really the softening of it is where the real right. learning, the real community, the real education begins to happen. And it 
it permeates Absolutely. into the community in interesting ways. Absolutely. And I just have to be reminded of it over and yes. over and over again. Yes, yes, I yes. never seem to get it firmly. I hear I you. I never seem to grab it completely. Yeah. Right. Well, I you know, I think I'm a person who lives with a vivid, vivid awareness daily of my vulnerabilities. And they feel many and they feel prominent to me. So what I'm what I'm aware of is that in that vulnerability, I am still in these roles where the assumption is I'm I don't have those vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas it's just absolutely the case that I do. And I I can speak about them, I can I can let people know them, I can try to be prepared to certainly engage about them, I can encourage other people to help me grow beyond them. I mean, I, I, there's all kinds of things that you can do with that. But in the end, it's still, as you say, it really comes down to, am I prepared to, to simply live as a vulnerable leader? And one of the main attractions to me of the Christian faith is actually the vulnerability of Jesus' own uh, life and death and resurrection, right? It's part of the character of the way that the story is told in the Gospels. And it's a very, very powerful story of, of vulnerability. And then the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says, and have this mind among you that was yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then he goes on to quote a longer text, who lived vulnerably. Hmm. And I'm just very motivated by that. And it continues to be the text that holds out a hope for me. So, Mark, one of the things I think is maybe some of the most interesting things in the world is the relationship between the creative life and the spiritual life. And I want to explore that a little bit with you. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to begin just with a quote of yours that I found where you said, we don't know what we know until we can live it. And if we can't live it, we might not know it. And that gets very close into some other things that I want to engage and I want to ask you about. But I wonder if you could discuss a little bit what you meant by that. Well, I, I think it's built off of several things. I think it's built off of uh, the teachings of Jesus, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, it's not whether you just affirm what I've said, it's whether you actually live what I've said. Uh, and that's the difference between building your house on rock and building your house on sand. The house on rock is a life lived, not just a faith professed, which is sand left without action. And I think it's part of a larger theme of the scriptures and also of my own experience, which is that in a way we're all involved continuously in a theology of making. And it's that making that is the process of living a human life. And and I am making my life today. We are having this conversation as another element of making our life today, right? And what are we making and how do we enact it? What do we bring to the table? What are we not bringing to the table. And I think it's in that context where it becomes a lived reality, not just a professed one, where faith intersects then with embodied existence, not just with, let's say, mental or abstract difference, but actually performative difference. This is where the language of performance um, intersects, obviously, with, with drama, because in many ways, I would say a biblical hermeneutic of what is going to actually most significantly connect with the biblical text is if a person's interested in performing the Bible, not just reciting it or protesting about it. It's really, are we interested in performing it? But that's true of friendship, right? It's true of professionalism. It's true of creativity. So for example, I have a lot of artistic friends and one of them is a very, very fine painter. And she really believed that I would loved paint. And I said, you know, I, I love doing creative things, but I just think painting isn't one of them. <laughs> and she said, no, I'm, I'm really actually quite sure that, that it really is something that you would love. So she appears at my door one day with a four foot by six foot canvas and a lot of paint. We spend a morning painting together, making a great mess on this canvas. And uh, I really enjoyed the time with my friend and time painting. And we went on with the rest of the day later 
And I came back to it and thought, yeah, I really do think I might like this. And I started that day painting. And for the next four or five years after that, I painted every morning and every evening, hmm. every day. And it was, it was like an unleashing of something in me that I had never, I hadn't even imagined or even desired. It wasn't something that I thought about doing. And yet it became a space of enormous importance to me. And I deliberately didn't want to learn about painting. I wanted just the freedom to be able to play in painting. And I did it in an extremely play playful way. And it was an example of something that I would have thought, wow, who would have ever guessed? But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't lived it, if I hadn't right. enacted it, performed it, right. if I hadn't made uh, a theology of making again. Uh, my, right. I wasn't making something. Well, that's the phrase, the theology of making. Because as you know, I'm, I have a book coming out in a few months called Make to Know. Yes. And it's all about the creative process. Yes, 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 yes. And it's all fundamentally about the fact that artists and designers tell me that they don't work so much on manifesting or realizing a vision as they do on um, making their way to discovery. Such a great way of putting it. And it sometimes gets confused, and I think erroneously, but people thinking that, you know, we're building the plane as we fly, or we're just, you know, making it up as we're going along. That's not it at all. I think we have experience and values and ethics and beliefs and education, but that's the scaffolding we stand on. Right. And the fundamental is that we reach into uncertainty when right. we are creative beings. I love that. Right. I can't wait to read this book. So... <laughs> Again, it's a part of the profound nature of my connection to you, but I think it just links in such amazing ways to the spiritual life. It does. I mean, I, I talk about that uncertainty is a difficult place, but it's also a creative place. That artists engage in materials to know things and right. to discover. That designers teach us about problem solving. Right. Performers teach us about what improvising life is, and very much in the spirit of what you were just saying. So... It seems to me, again, it's rich with parallels to the spiritual life. It is. Two of them just come together in all kinds of astonishing ways. They do. I, I completely agree. My grandmother lived with us from the time that I was born until she died when I was in ninth grade. And she was a, a really quite amazing woman who had been left with four little girls um, on a wheat ranch in eastern Oregon, no electricity, no running water, to raise these girls. And my mom was one of those four little girls. And it's an amazing story, but during the time that she lived with us, and I remember so many, so many creative moments with my grandmother, who literally had, you know, as it were, two two nickels to rub together would be on a good day, and yet she was in her soul and being, an adventurer, a creative spirit, expansive, and I remember many times taking walks as probably a like a four or five year old, and she would say. Okay, so let's make today the, a yellow day. We're going to just find yellow everywhere that we can find yellow. And, uh, and we're going to notice all the differences in the yellow. And we're going to uh, then go home and think about the yellow and do some painting with the yellow. And it was this feeling that I didn't have to, in that case, materially have anything at that moment. But she was training me mm, to be beautiful. a person yeah. who could see the world, right? And and sometimes it would be other things. It would be shapes, or sometimes it would be, you know, she was she was just doing early childhood education in a way, but what she was really doing in early childhood education was forming a maker. That was what she was actually doing. And her deep spirituality was a hugely important formative factor for me. And I think it emerges in the same space that you're describing, Brian. It's just it's profound and it comes out of out of a capacity to improvise. I think one of the reasons I thought I would never be a painter was that I didn't have, quote, the skill to be a certain kind of painter that I thought would be the only kind that, that a person should be or something <laughs> strange. And then I realized, no, I mean, that's that's not even the art that primarily draws me. The art that draws me is abstract, modernist, um, that is not, that still takes enormous skill, uh, but that allows me to bring to it all that I do know, not what I don't know, all that I do have, not what I don't have. And I would only discover that 
in the making of it. And I do think it was a very, it is a very, very creative thing. So when I'm painting and writing on the same day, I will write for uh, an hour and, and take a 15 or 30 minute painting quote break. And then I'll come back. And the synergy between these two things is just an amazing energy. It's like a force field. <laughs> and, mm. and it's, uh, it is a combination of spirituality and of, of literal making in words, in one case, in, in paint, uh, in the other case. Is prayer making for you? Yeah, prayer is making. And it's one of the reasons why I don't feel like it's mechanical. It's, it's as improvisational as, as that question, I think, implies. Yeah, yeah, it's very deeply improvisational. And it's, um, and it's definitely making. It feels as though you're setting into a space like this conversation. You're making a conversation right now. I'm not nervous about the conversation. I'm not thinking that I have to have all the answers to anything that you're asking. Uh, I might easily be uh, be speechless. Um, and yet, it's also the case that there's a confidence in being able to let it be improvisational, right? And that is making something that I won't know until we've had this conversation. And prayer is like that for me. Yeah, very much like that. And what improvisation helps us understand is, or the, or the beauty of it really, is that the thing made and the process of making it are one and the same. Yes, 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 yes. And I didn't understand that for a long time. I, For example, in, in dramatic terms, when I was in college, I decided that I, I didn't want to be in any play, but I wanted to take acting classes. So I, I took uh, three acting classes during the time that I was there. And what was so amazing to me, especially obviously in acting classes, naturally you're just doing a lot of improvisational stuff as, as part of it. And I couldn't believe the spaces that it opened up to do this. It was just amazing to me. And there are memories that I have of certain improvisations uh, that I did during that, those classes that still show me that there's something that I have to actually do to discover that I know something. This is back to that original quote, right? I know that I know it because I can actually do it. So the place that I lived as a student had a cook and the cook had, I'll call it, lots of distinctive features to her personality and body and many things. And so one of the things we were supposed to do in, in this class was to become another person in our mind and then to adopt as many of their distinctive gestures and body movements. So it was almost nonverbal, but in tone and tenor of your body and space. So I spent a week just trying to observe her in whatever way that I could whenever our paths crossed. And then I, uh, the invitation in this case was that you started by lying on the floor and then moving up into the space as this person. And that was a transformative experience to me. And for those moments that I was doing this, it felt to me like I was living inside her in a way that I could never objectively have imagined. <laughs> but when I was actually doing it, it was like it was actually in me hmm. to do this. And I, I've just discovered that same thing over and over and over again as you're asking about it. It is the thing that you're exploring in your book. It is these, these themes that are intrinsically intertwined, that are human, spiritual, theological, interpersonal, social, physical, emotional, intellectual. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, a particular in all of this is empathy and how we talk about empathy. Right. And something that I think both Fuller and Art Center teach as a kind of central part of what it is that we hope our students develop and learn and, right. and find guidance in to be a great, certainly to be a great artist and to be a great designer, one has to develop that empathy muscle in, exactly. in, in certain ways. But how, how do you learn it? Yes. How do you teach it? You embody it. Yes. You start on the floor and you move into it and you take it on and you practice it, you make it. Right. And that's the way ultimately I think you come to know right. it. One of the great challenges of this moment is brooking disagreement and how hard a time we have with that. Right, very hard, yeah. And it seems to me that in all of this, somehow we have to cross over, we have to carry this with us. We have to be able to understand that sort of these lessons of the spiritual life, these lessons of the creative life need to inform how we can 
grow into that as community. Right. Yeah. Well, I think so much of that problem is built out of a life of fear so that so much of the inability to exert empathy is that if I give up my empathy to a person that I don't know, don't like, may not instinctively trust or whatever it might be, then it's a zero-sum game. And the assumption is I will lose. So then that fear ends up stopping any capacity to lean toward the other, toward difference, toward even the collision of difference. And I do find it very difficult. I do. I find it very difficult to be with people whose rabid political and social views can sometimes feel as though they are really just about dominance, just about devouring. Um, They're not about meeting. They're not about a kind of convergence of understanding. And I think it's difficult to know what is it that can be done in a conversation to invite a person across the fear threshold into a place where I will honor you. I'm not going to take something away from you. I'm not, right. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to dominate you. I just want to genuinely know you. And I want to listen. And there must be some clue in what we were saying oh, earlier yeah. about the softening of the heart, yeah. right? I mean, how we can do that to be able to listen. Right. And certainly that softening is critical to you know the best and most profound creative work. And I think we get confused thinking that the softening means that we're abandoning courage right. or strength right. on the contrary. Right. It works the other way, likely. Yeah. But as you point out, the fear gets in the way. I think often, you know, when we think about a direct engagement, the fear factor tends for a lot of personalities to immediately go up. So the question that I've tried to keep in my mind about this is, how do I come alongside someone so that we are in the same space, perhaps looking at a third concern, and in doing Mm -hmm. so, less focused on the resolution of this, and there's a softening in a shared experience of concern about something else, right? And this isn't always available to us. It's not always the strategy that works, I realize. But when that can happen, I find that more people are prepared to give of themselves initially, where it can then turn toward each other. But that turning happens after there's been enough trust one in kind of parallel play (laughs) that you can then turn toward each other in a different way. And I know that's an easy analogy to use, but I have been amazed that when I want to take it on because I want to, I'm more willing to have the direct conversation, even if it involves disagreement, than some personalities are. But if there can be ground gained in a shared or even a just even a mutual experience of occupying the same space and not being down each other's throats, uh, it obviously shifts things. That's not always possible for the reasons we both know very well, but it is a hugely important concern. And you can't make anything in the first model when it's just about collision, dominance, and fear. That's not, that's not a creative space. Right. right. I do think sometimes if you're personally comfortable with your own fears about the conversation and actually saying those fears to the person that you're, you're having the conversation with, it's actually somewhat disarming and creates a space for a different sort of conversation. I mean, I had a conversation a couple of months ago with a person who was particularly conflicted with something I had written. And it was not a person that I knew, but it was a person that I wanted to engage. And I said, you know, I'd be up for a phone conversation. I'd be up for a Zoom call. I'd be up for corresponding if you'd like to do this. Well, I'm not sure. And they seem very apprehensive. I said, well, I'll tell you that when I offer this, it's not because I don't have apprehensions. My apprehensions are these. They were not accusatory. They were just really about what was in me that made me think, oh gosh, I don't, I'm not really wanting to get across here. It's, it's not at a moment where I'm, I'm wanting to have some angry debate. I'm not wanting to project something that I think is not true, but I could still be projecting it because it's maybe true, even despite wanting it not to be true. And after I said some of those things, there was a, an unexpected kind of protracted somewhat awkward silence. And then without commenting on what I said, they went ahead with the engagement. Hmm. And I didn't ever go back to the things I had said, but I guess it felt like a white flag or something, right? That was kind of signaling, I'm really not here as your enemy. I'm honestly not here as your enemy. And I'm not going to make something of what you're saying. I'm not going to turn it on you or it's just not my, it's not my spirit. It's not what I'm wanting to do. So 
it's complicated and it's complicated inside our institutions, right? Not just out, not just in relationship to others. It's as much inside as outside. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. It's incredibly complicated. And I perceive it as a, a real and pressing challenge of the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. And that as a leader, I feel called to try to help soften hearts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. encourage empathy. Mm-hmm. Right. Encourage listening. Yeah. But I've had mixed results. <laughs> well, as have I. Absolutely. I do think that there's so many things that are involved, but right now when so much is happening, obviously online, it makes it harder to use body language in, in a more effective way. But when you can meet in person, right. the more charged the conversation, the more I try to say to myself, let your body be relaxed. Keep breathing deeply. Don't tighten up as the energy level uh, heightens. Uh, remain in a vulnerable posture, not in a, in a guarded one. And those are obviously things that I, we both know, but it is hard in the middle of those circumstances. Absolutely, absolutely. Mark, I can't thank you enough. I learned so much from you. Every conversation is just, uh, it's just been a delight today. Thank you. Thanks for your time and your wisdom and your generosity of spirit. It's really my gift. I'm honored to be here. And thank you very much for having me. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Ullen. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.